We actually have a guest teacher this morning, but she's not really a guest because she's been here for forever. Carissa Plett is a good friend of mine and a good friend of Lakeview. All right, can I get through the introduction? Give me a break, guys. Give me a break. Okay, fine. Yay, Carissa. <laughs> uh, I guess officially, uh, Carissa is um, the Director of Theology and Spiritual Development for Youth for Christ Canada, which means that she offers care for youth workers across the country. Uh, but for me, she's been a good friend a good helper, a great conversation partner, and actually she's really fun to hang out with, to be honest with you. That did not come out right. Not actually fun to hang out with. She is so fun to hang out with. Anyways, Carissa is here today. She's going to continue in on our series, and you guys are in for a treat. So to get us into the message, turn your attention to the screen one more time, and this video will introduce our topic for the day. I think the world needs to hear from God that God sees us and that God is with us and that there is a way, there is a way to peace. There is. It's the path of vulnerability. It's the path of love. Hippie, not uh, sustainable, can't govern that way. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And in fact, God did govern this way. In Genesis, not in Genesis, in Exodus, when, when God actually established the people of Israel, God established the Sabbath, the sabbatical year, and the year of Jubilee. And in those times, and through those three pillars of God's governance, that's God's governance in action, what you see is you see that God actually made a way systemically through the structure that there would never be poverty in perpetuity for any family in Israel ever because through the Sabbath you actually get you get the establishment of at least one day a week again limiting right like creating limitations on the darkness at least one day a week even if you're a slave one day a week you are equal before God you are coming in to um, into the into the throne room of God and you are able to worship and God wants you as much as God wants anybody else and then in the, in the sabbatical year everybody gets the year off the whole year off and they get their debts forgiven that's huge and slaves are set free this is every seven years and then Jubilee every seven times seven years not only do people get the whole year off, not only do they get their debts forgiven, hello, school loans, hello, you know, hello, mortgages, hello, housing crisis, right? Like, not only do they get their debts forgiven, but they also get their land restored to them. So if your house has gone into foreclosure in the last 49 years, and that reset button year, after the 50th year or 49th year, depending on how you, how you count, God hits the reset button in God's governance and every all the land shifts back to the original deed holder, holders because there's grace in God's governance. There's the understanding that we don't need to be perfect. We are not perfect. We will never be perfect. And in God's governance, there will never be a human being who lives under the reign of God within whom the image of God is not cultivated respected and protected and that's why in God's governance there's a there's a governance in a way that that declares there will be no poverty and perpetuity here ever
Good morning, Lakeview. Wow. Let me just take this in for a second. Um, I'm Carissa. I, don't, I didn't hear anything that Joe said about me, so I, I, it's probably better that way. Um, I've been part of the Lakeview community uh, for over 15 years. I was gone for a stint in between that, but um, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for sticking with me. Some of you maybe saw me um, in, in the online services this spring. Thanks for sticking with me. I know I talked super fast. Uh, there was a learning curve with that teleprompter and it just kept pumping out words and I just kept saying them. Um, this is way more fun for me, okay? This is way more fun. Um, today we're looking at 1 Kings 21. And this is another story uh, in a line of stories about the kings of Israel who stray from the ways of Yahweh. And in this particular narrative, the issue at hand is surprisingly uh, not the worship of other gods. Often that's the case. But here, the issue surrounds a king who disregards the way land and people are supposed to be treated within God's covenant life. The video that played as I came out, it was just to kind of whet our appetite, to remind us that God's governance has a certain shape to it. When God made a covenant with Israel, he gave them guidelines, those limitations, terms that they had to agree to in order for the covenant to be ratified. And some of the guidelines were about land use. And, and others were about how people were to be treated. And in both cases, with land and people, using them as commodities for economic or political gain or personal gain was forbidden. Yahweh's covenant operated on mutuality. Power among people was shared. Sabbath and sabbatical rest was built into the system for all of creation, people, animals, and land. And the people were meant to live together in dependence on one another. This was God's design. And again today, we can be looking for how this chapter, how this story answers the two questions Joe gave us at the start of this series. Is God Lord? And is God faithful? But before we get into the text, um, think with me for a moment. Think about the soil where you come from. What was it like? Think about the backyard where you grew up, or maybe the multiple backyards you grew up in. Was the soil dark? Was it, was it sandy soil? Was it coarse? Was it soft? Do you remember digging your toes into it as a kid? What did it grow? Maybe you grew up in the city and there was mostly concrete around you. Um, or maybe you only had a balcony. Maybe your family only had a balcony and anything you wanted to grow had to grow in pots. Where did you get your soil from? Did you have to buy it at a store in a bag? Or maybe you were a farm kid like me. Maybe you had acres of dirt to roam and explore. Maybe things grew everywhere. 
Maybe you spent a summer watering 350 tiny evergreen seedlings and you thought you would die from heat exhaustion or boredom. I don't know. You tell me. Some of us were lucky like that. Now think for a moment about the gardeners you know. Some of you are those gardeners. The green thumbs. What do they know about the soil? Who do you know that seems to be able to grow anything, anywhere? What do they know about seasons and moisture, temperatures and growing conditions? Naboth is a new character in today's text, and we have very little backstory about him. King Ahab, who also features in this story, him we've encountered before, and Jezebel and Elijah, these are characters we know, but it'll be helpful to go into the reading today with a sense of who Naboth was. Naboth was a vine dresser, a gardener. He was both a Jezreelite and an Israelite. Jezreel is the area he was from, and Israel was the people group that identified him. He was one who worshipped Yahweh, the one true God. Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel is next to King Ahab's palace, the king's second palace, that is, his getaway palace, if you will. Naboth was a generational farmer on the land. It was an ancestral inheritance passed down through his family, as was the custom of, of rural Israelites. This system of land use operated on the notion that the land and its occupants are inseparable. Land is not just where you live, but it's a part of who you are. God gave the Israelites the land, and so their identity is tied both to God and the particular plot of land where they live. The land is their God-given inheritance, and to Naboth, the land is not a commodity. It's not an asset. It's an identity. As a generational farmer of the land, Naboth would have known his vineyard inside and out. He would have known where all the low spots and all the ridges were. He would have known the drainage patterns and have fashioned his irrigation accordingly. He would have known what kind of animals and pests and insects were around and how to prevent them from damaging his crop. He would have known what his soil needed in order to bring about the best yield year in and year out. Naboth would have used his local knowledge to care for the land in its particularity a way of relating to the land that poet and essayist Wendell Berry calls kindly use. This kind of care depends on intimate knowledge of the land and it's a discipline that only really matters to those who expect their seed, the future generations of their family, to be thriving on the same plot of land. There's a permanence to this way of land use. And this concept is how Naboth and other ancient Israelite farmers approached their land, their soil. So, with that image of Naboth in mind, uh, let's get started with our story. First Kings 21. 
Now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. Okay, so first of all, bold move by Naboth. Refusing the king can't be an easy choice. There's a power dynamic there. And Naboth, he's not doing this just for kicks. Naboth is aware of the chasm between the system of land use that he subscribes to as a rural dweller and a follower of Yahweh and the system that Ahab is interested in based on his offer. We are tipped off to this competing set of systems by two details, the ancestral inheritance and the vegetable garden. And unfortunately, King Ahab is likely playing Naboth for a bit of a dummy here. And here's why. Remember how we said that the land use system for Israelites in covenant with God was one of ancestral inheritance, and it spoke of permanence, of many generations thriving on the same small area of land. Well, Ahab's claim that he wants to use Naboth's land to plant a vegetable garden is a dead giveaway that he's operating on a different system. No one who is operating on Naboth's system would dream of tearing out a vineyard which takes years and years to become established with a vegetable garden, which is the definition of impermanence. It's being highlighted here that the king of Israel is treating land as a commodity to fortify his empire. He has clearly lost sight of the land use system that Yahweh put in place and has adopted an idea about land that treats it as a commodity for his own convenience, as a way to make a quick buck, or in Ahab's case, probably as a way to procure this productive, thriving vineyard, not change anything, and then use the fine wine to impress his economic and political partners at his fancy summer palace feasts. Ahab is consolidating power through securing more crown land. And his offer to Naboth, even though he offers a fair price, is a royal power move. So, Naboth doesn't take the bait. And King Ahab is pouting. Let's see what happens next. Spoiler alert, Ahab brings in his fixer. What's the matter, his wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused, Ahab told her. Time out. Wait a minute. Is Ahab relaying the spirit behind Naboth's answer? I think not. Let's rewind for one quick second. Verse 3, 
But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. That's a little bit different than just a, no, I don't feel like it. Okay, just had to clear that up. Are you the king of Israel or not, Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something. And don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, she commanded, call the citizens together for a time of fasting and give Naboth a place of honor. And then seat two scoundrels across from him because that's how many witnesses are needed to convict someone of the charges brought against them. Seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. They called for a fast and put Naboth at a prominent place before the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat across from him. They accused Naboth before all the people saying he cursed God and the king. So he was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. So yeah, things happen exactly according to Jezebel's plan. And once Naboth is out of the picture, the land defaults into possession of the crown. And Jezebel shoes Ahab down to the vineyard to collect his winnings. The end. Pretty slick, huh? Yeah. So, is God Lord? This question is absolutely deafening in this moment. A man has just been swindled out of his land after standing up to the king in obedience to God and has been unjustly and ruthlessly eliminated. What are you feeling here? I'm feeling something like, uh, God, where are you? Naboth was being faithful, and you're just going to stand around and let him die? Let's make sure we understand what has just occurred. First off, Queen Jezebel. She's easy to blame here, and certainly she's not blameless. Um, but she comes from a different system. She's from Sidon, where royal power is absolute it's not subject to divine judgment. So she's doing what she knows. In her mind, this is how things work. And it's very possible that Ahab knew what Jezebel would do. And he just, he just lets things run their course. We also need to name this for what it is. Murder. Deceit. Land grabbing, misuse of power, manipulation of the judicial system, the bystander effect. And it's a flagrant disregard for God's instructions around land ownership 
that exist for the flourishing of all the people of God and all of creation. It is unfaithfulness to the covenant with Yahweh. Is God Lord? Is Yahweh faithful? Has God been paying attention to the breakdown of the system? Does God care about one Israelite gardener's death? You bet your bottom dollar. The royal story ends in victory, and then verse 17 begins, but. But the Lord said to Elijah, Yahweh enters this narrative directly. There is a decisive shift in the text here, moving from a royal story to a prophetic narrative, to Elijah the prophet and God's response to the murder and land grabbing that has just occurred. And it is a response I will offer a trigger warning for. If you can't do blood, you might want to plug your ears. But the Lord said to Elijah, go down to meet the king, uh, to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. So, my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. Yes, Elijah answered, I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I am going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Bashah, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. These parentheses are mine. I think this is called poetic justice. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. Whoa. The king has overplayed his hand, and God does not let this moment pass. In the video we saw earlier, Lisa Sharon Harper spoke about the community of God. She said, within God's governance, there will never be a human being who lives under the reign of God, within whom the image of God isn't cultivated, respected, and protected. God's way of life in community is built upon the declaration that neither people nor land are commodities. Starting to get that, right? Walter Brueggemann has this to say about God's response to Ahab's actions. He says, the judgment is massive and without qualification. While prophetic rhetoric is familiar to us, it is important to see how the destruction of one peasant 
evokes total dismissal of the dynasty. The destruction of one life is as though the crown had ravaged all of creation. It will not be tolerated by Yahweh. One of the things Brueggemann means by this is that while the author of Kings is using a form of writing called prophetic rhetoric that at times embellishes or uses hyperbole to get its point across, the magnitude of this judgment, an entire dynasty destroyed over the death of one peasant, this communicates how important this topic is to God. The land and how it's used is a covenant matter to God. And the covenant between Israel and God was conditional. Israel's prosperity depended on continued obedience to the terms of the covenant. And God is willing to hold the king accountable for breaking the terms. Ahab, through proxies, violates three of the ten commandments of the covenant. Lying, murder, and theft. God is Lord, and he is faithful to his covenant promises with his people. Ahab and Jezebel found out that as covenant people with Yahweh, if you treat people and land as commodities to be expended to furnish your own empire building, there is a price to pay. So, let's do a little review of the main ideas of this text in their context. First, this story highlights the system of land use stipulated by God in his covenant with the people of Israel. Namely, the land is not a commodity, rather it is an identity and an inheritance for the people of God. Second, Naboth's faithfulness to this covenant theology of the land got him killed. Third, Ahab and Jezebel's lying, murder, and land theft were a misuse of royal power and a breach in the terms of the covenant with Yahweh. And four, Yahweh, through his prophet Elijah, proved his faithfulness to his people and his covenant with them by bringing judgment against Ahab's dynasty. That's the story we just read. And that's lots to think about, isn't it? Hopefully we've grasped some of the significance of this narrative for the people of Israel, but what about us? What about us as the people of God in Saskatoon? What does this story of Naboth's murder and the talk of God's governance and land use and misuse of royal power, what, is, what do these things make you think of? Here are a few questions I thought of as I chewed on this text this week. Where do I see God's vision of the thriving of land and people in interdependence at work. This is a positive vision. Where do we see this vision at work? One of the places I've experienced this thriving huh, was working on my brother's CSA garden last summer. 
CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And it's a beautiful way for us non-farmers to connect with local farmers, to know where our food comes from, and to eat according to what the particularities of the land we live on has to offer during the season. If you haven't heard of this model before, I totally suggest that you Google it this week. It's actually really cool. And there was so much joy for me in getting, to, in getting my hands into the dirt last summer and learning from my brother the local knowledge and the ways of kindly use that he's been cultivating on our family land in Manitoba. Where do you see and experience this kind of thriving? And here's another question. How are we doing with God's covenant way of shared power and interdependence? What about with the commoditizing of land and people? And a question that maybe helps flesh that out, is mine a consumption for consumption's sake way of life? Do I consume simply to consume because I like it? Because I can? And what kind of commoditizing am I participating in when that kind of consumption goes unexamined? Here's a tough one I think is important for us to look at. Are we and our systems vulnerable to manipulation by powerful people? One of the things I've been pondering this week is, which character do I think I am in the royal story? I, I don't really readily identify with Ahab and Jezebel. I, you know, I've, like, I've got some wealth and power in the world system, but I'm not like, I'm not like royalty rich, you know? <laughs> I don't really identify with Naboth either, uh, though I wonder what I would have done in his position. I wonder if I would have had the kind of faithfulness to God that Naboth showed. So that leaves the elders and nobles who do the manipulative bidding of Jezebel, the scoundrels who are willing to perjure themselves, and the townspeople, the townspeople of Jezreel who stoned Naboth to death over trumped-up charges. These are people who either didn't stop to think about the injustice they were perpetrating, or who were so concerned with being on the right side of the king that they didn't care. Is that me? And if it is, Am I brave enough to look it in the eye? Here's a last question. What kind of faithfulness is God calling us to here and now, in our time, when it comes to land use issues? And there's a lot of places we could go with this. This is a tough question. But on this last question, it feels important to turn and face directly the glaring similarities 
that the story of Naboth has with Canada's own history of land grabbing and with what's going on in our city and our province and our country right now as we mourn the abuse and neglect and murder of Indigenous children in residential schools. And I know this stuff is hard to talk about. I know it can stir emotions and discomfort in different ways for, for settlers and for Indigenous folks. And I want to be careful and I want to be honouring here. I really do. And I acknowledge that I'm speaking as a settler and that comes with bias and blind spots and I'm a work in progress and I'm working on it. But if you can, just stay here and feel this discomfort with me. I'm not here with an agenda. I'm here after living with this text all week and seeing again that as the people of God, as the people of God, trying to be faithful to the word of God, the question of exploitation of land and people has to be on our radar. Not because politicians and activists and the culture around us are pushing it in front of us, but because the word of God, the story of Naboth and his vineyard, puts it front and center. I went on a long, wandering walk this week. <laughs> Do you ever go on those? They're so much fun. Um, and I ended up downtown. And it was almost like God was drawing me to a certain place on the land that day. And I ended up at that memorial in the center of the Bez, the, right next to the Bez Gardens. You know the one I'm talking about, the white one? that right now it has orange flags strung all around it and there are painted handprints all over the place, tiny handprints. And I walked a few circles around that memorial and I wept. Because it's right to be inconvenienced and to take intentional time to mourn and it's right to face my complicity even when I didn't do it intentionally and to humble myself. You, have, you may have encountered the term uh, generational trauma and it's a term that helps us understand that the trauma experienced by residential school survivors could have been passed on to subsequent generations of Indigenous families so that even if someone didn't experience the trauma firsthand, they are impacted by it in profound ways and they carry it, they carry that trauma in their bodies and in their minds. And in a different way, I think settlers, and I'm speaking I'm speaking directly to those of us who are settlers right now. Settlers have to deal with the generational brokenness that has passed through the generations to us. We may not have been there perpetrating the violence 
of residential schools, but the brokenness of the settlers who were there impacts us generations later. It impacts our economic priorities and our laws and our biases and maybe most importantly for us as the people of God, I think it impacts the way we read scripture and it can at times, this generational brokenness, it can shield us from the things in scripture that would liberate us from our brokenness. It can shield us from the things in scripture that are meant to indict us, that are meant to reveal our guilt rather than uphold our sense of power. We actually end up missing the prophetic narratives in scripture that would liberate us so we don't keep perpetuating injustice. God's way actually liberates the oppressed and the oppressor. And for settlers, generational healing from that brokenness, it'll be from the sin of being the oppressor. And we need the mercy of God to find it. In a strange twist, this chapter of Kings actually ends on a mercy note. And it helps us toward that healing, maybe. In the last verses, we read about Ahab's response to God's judgment, and then God's response to Ahab's response. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. Was Ahab for real in his remorse? Or was it just a case of feeling the shame of getting caught red-handed? I guess we can't know for sure, but God seems to have believed him. And in these last verses, we get a glimpse of something that the people of God needed to believe and be reminded of as they read uh, these words. Yahweh is gracious, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. It may not sound like mercy to us that Ahab's humility passes the destruction um, from his time to the time of his sons, but for the people of Israel, facing defeat and exile, guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt of breaking their covenant with Yahweh time and time again, I wonder if this relenting, this graciousness of God in the case of Ahab's remorse would have spoken hope to them. Hope that maybe God hadn't given up on them. That there was still time to humble themselves and receive God's mercy. So 
So remember how I started out by asking you about the soil where you come from? Now I want you to think about the soil where you find yourself now. What colors and textures does it hold? What has been growing and blooming for you? Where have you walked barefoot lately? What does the land feel like underneath your toes? I went on a long barefoot walk this week to do some thinking and praying, as I said, as I prepared for today. And if I can give you some homework, is that okay? Can I give you some homework? Everybody's like, oh, it's summer. <laughs> I'm giving you some homework. Um, find some time to walk barefoot on the land this week. Maybe just in your backyard. Um, or maybe you can find a park that'll work well. And as you do, ask God to show you what you need to see from Naboth's story. Sit with the questions that surface for you. Maybe spend some intentional time mourning with those who mourn because of unjust death. Ask God to show you where you and where we have strayed from the way of life in community that God is about. And we don't practice this kind of prayer in order to succumb to shame or to be paralyzed by guilt, but so that we can humble ourselves and experience the fullness of God's mercy. Thanks for giving me space to share today. And let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you um, that you are Lord and that you are faithful. And we ask this week that you will show us what you want us to see in the story of Naboth. We thank you that you stepped in and didn't allow for his death to mean nothing. And we ask you to show us um, how we can treat land and people as you have designed us to. We hear those lyrics, all the earth will praise your name. And we want to be a part of that. very carefully before you, those who are mourning today. We ask you to show us how to be good mourners alongside them. Thank you, God, that you are who you say you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.